every book is flawed. Every creator is flawed uh, from the past in the present. And so the job of the child reader is to develop this healthy resistance to all of the agendas and all of the stories. And the best way to do that is through a moderated appetite. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Children's author Matali Perkins has been a nominee for the National Book Award. She was born in India, but has lived all over the world. Bangladesh, England, Thailand, Mexico, Cameroon, Ghana, and for most of her life, the United States. So it comes as no surprise that her books for young readers, and there have been at least 12 or 14, all explore the crossing of borders of one kind or another. She has said one of life's greatest joys is to create spaces where young people feel safe, welcome, and beloved. Stories are one such space. Matali Perkins' newest book, Bear Tree and Little Wind, is a picture book that tells the story of Holy Week. In 2021, she published her first nonfiction book for adults, Steeped in Stories, Timeless Children's Novels to Refresh Our Tired Souls. I was very glad when Matali Perkins agreed to come on the Habit Podcast. Matali Perkins, I'm so glad that you are on the Habit Podcast today. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. So uh, I, if I, I think this episode, the plan is for this episode to release at Holy Week. And so you have a new book about Holy Week called um, Bear Tree and Little Wind. <laughs> and you made some interesting choices here. It wouldn't have occurred to me if I was going to tell the story of, of Holy Week to tell it from the point of view of a personified gust of wind, if that's the right word, and a palm tree that is bare of palms and dates and oil and just uh, uh, it's you, you did this this little story where these outsiders are looking in on the events of Holy Week, um, and I want to hear what possessed you to write a story about Holy Week from the point of view of the wind. I grew up in a home that uh, was not a Christian home, and so my father was a great lover of nature. Uh-huh. And he would uh, take us out uh, to walk in the woods, uh, hold up a leaf and have us look at the symmetry of it. Uh-huh. Uh, he, would, he was always convinced that there was a God of love who was a creator God who had made all of this beauty. Uh-huh. So I grew up with that simple faith um, until I was 15 years old. And I, a good friend of mine was, actually, was killed in a car accident uh-huh. in, a, in a head-on collision with a drunk driver. And... It was as if my eyes opened up and I thought, what is, how can a God of love that created all that beauty coexist with this incredible amount of suffering? I had lived in different parts of the developing world and I had seen a lot of suffering, mm-hmm. but this was the first time where it hit home. And I asked, how could those two things coexist? A God of love, beauty, and uh, the perfection of a butterfly, as my dad would always say, yeah. coincide with the suffering. And so I think I, I've always ex- ex- uh, just really admired my father's view and his faith in uh, in the face of all that he suffered. Uh-huh. So, uh, so I think I wanted to give that perspective of how all creation waits in eager anticipation yeah. for for the children of God to be revealed. Uh, that that long view of of nature that is so patient, especially when it comes to the trees that are waiting to clap their hands and yeah. the winds, who are his messengers, we're told 
So I, I really wanted to have that, that uh, outside of human history, that weary mm. plot, plot of human history. And I felt that nature uh, is something that can give us fresh eyes. Yeah. Well, there, there was something that sort of reminded me of um, almost like, um, you know, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, you know, where, where we know that we know the story and here is the, the perspective on that story from, you know, people who aren't directly involved in the story. And, you know, we talk about the importance, you know, writers are always talking about, you know, oh, what's my way into the story or how do I invite readers into the story? Um, and it occurs to me from, from reading this picture book. And by the way, the pictures are gorgeous in this book. I know Colonne is, I just feel so grateful that she agreed to illustrate this book. She's based in Vietnam, another total outsider. Yeah. Uh, and she, her eyes were fresh and new and um, her art, her color, the colors that she uses makes this really a book to, to keep and savor, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a, that was an aside, a necessary aside, but it wasn't aside from my, sentence that I started, which was, what were we talking about, Matali? I forgot. Uh, I forgot the way into a story. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes the gift of a, of a story is to pull us out, right? I mean, this this is the Holy Week is a, it's a story I've known my whole life, and I need to be pulled out of that story and see it from another perspective. So I, I, I know the idea of an outsider is really important in your um, you know, your, all of your, your stories, uh, an outside perspective. You, you often write about immigrants and, and, and other people who, who see, who are looking in from the outside. Um, so the floor is open to discuss the idea of, of being outside. Yeah, I think I wrote a book called Home is In Between, which is a picture book for kids who grew up between cultures like mm -hmm. I did. And I think there's a tendency to think, oh, it's really hard to be an immigrant. It's hard to uh, leave a culture and start anew in a culture where you know more about that culture than your parents do. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, you have to interpret the, the new culture to your parents. And, and that mm -hmm. is a difficult way to grow up. But the great part about growing up as an outsider is that you really learn to make yourself feel like an insider everywhere. Huh. You really learn to make yourself at home everywhere. If, it's almost like learning a language when you're a child. If you, you know, children learn languages so much faster than we do because yeah. they have this great fluency of their hearts and minds are open mm -hmm. and their brains are so, yeah. so fluid. So when you learn that language of making yourself feel like an insider, even when others see you like an outsider, mm. yeah, for, it's a lifelong practice. It, it serves you for life because you know what it, you have an eye. You also have an eye for the outsider, the outsider who maybe doesn't have that same superpower to make themselves feel at home. Mm -hmm. So it's a great way to grow up if you survive it. <laughs> you know, to have to have your parents with their heavy accents being rejected by mm -hmm. people who aren't used to that those accents, or when you have to explain to your mom how to get a job or mm -hmm. uh, apply for a driver's license and all those other things that you do when you're in middle school and high school for your parents. But at the end of the day, I feel it's a really wonderful way to grow up. Yeah. So you you said you grew up all over the developing world. You you were born in Bengal, is that correct? In India. Yes. And and when did you come to the United States? 
I was seven years old when we first settled in New York City, Flushing, Queens, uh, in mm-hmm. a small apartment. My father was a civil engineer, and so he came in when the visas opened up at that point for engineers. Uh, and then after that, we lived in Mexico, and then we settled in California in seventh grade okay. in a suburb where we were the only family not born in the USA. I started oh, wow. school, Jonathan, in the middle of seventh grade, and there was an assembly day. And so the principal uh, decided to introduce me to the whole school at once, brought me in front of the, uh, the assembly and said, we have a new student from Asia. Make her feel welcome. Yeah, and I looked around. <laughs> I was 11 years old. I looked around and I, everybody was white except me. Everybody was born in the USA except me. And so I knew that this was when I, I always tell kids when I visit kids and as an author, I say, uh, you know, if your story, if your life story is, if, if your life story is being authored, then seventh grade is when the plot thickens. <laughs> I think if you, we're all sort of survivors of that, but this made it doubly interesting for me to have to, to try to do that code switching of home, traditional Bengali home, very old fashioned, very strict. Take your shoes off when you come in. You, you, my mom wore sharis. We spoke Benga, uh, Bengali. And then the California suburb where in those days, you know, I was trying to use my curling iron uh, in the morning to, to transform myself into Farrah Fawcett. You to know, make wings. To, yeah, to make my wings so that I could look like everyone else. It didn't work. But, <laughs> so that was quite, quite an interesting time to move and settle into a suburb in California. Yeah. I love the, the image in, in your, your – we're going to talk a little bit about your other book, your other most recent book, Steeped in Stories. And I love that image from the introduction where you, you talk about being on a fire escape reading in New York city and inside the apartment is basically a Bengali village and outside is everything that is New York city. And then you're right in the middle of this, in this, uh, on this fire escape in a third world, whatever the world of that book was that you were reading. And, and I love that, that image. Yeah, that, that was, uh, I remember the first day when we moved to New York, I think I started the Steeped in Stories, which is uh, my, my nonfiction book for adults about uh, timeless children's novels that I reread every year and how they refresh my souls. But the first time I encountered those novels was when my sister took me to the Flushing Public Library. And uh, I had never been to a library before. And I mm. walked in and she got me in my card and said, you know, you could take seven books home. And I thought I was in some sort of a cave of treasures. Mm-hmm. I'd always loved stories. My dad was a wonderful storyteller. And I'd always grown up just with the magic of when my father started a story and we would all get lost in it, a story from childhood. And so when I discovered those books, then, of course, that was a time when our family was going through a lot of stress. It was Mm -hmm. uh, times were tight. We didn't have much money. Uh, It was a new culture. Family was far away. And so the fire escape became a place, as you said, that was very safe for me with those stories. And and as you said, I was able to escape into... um, Avonlea on Prince Edward Island, that became one of my homes, or uh, Concord, Massachusetts with um, uh, Auntie Louisa, as I call her, and Steeped in uh-huh. Stories, who took me uh, to that to that place and made that place feel at home. So I had many, many homes out there. On that uh-huh. uh, I, I love that. I mean, you, you, you've mentioned you had many homes, many geographical homes, places that you that you live, but, but your books were, were more homes. I love it. I want to hear a little bit about you. You mentioned that your father was a was a storyteller, and it, was there anything distinctly um, 
but my, my father was a storyteller too in my you know the, the, there were a lot of stories told in, in my family when I was I was growing up in Georgia and I, and I feel like that was an exceedingly even though I have a you know I, I went to graduate school I have a PhD in English and that certainly didn't hurt my writing career but but I really feel like it was those you know being around storytellers is what really shaped me um I, 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 what's my question here? I, I'm, I'm curious to know the fact that your father was a, was a, sto- a an Indian, a Bengali storyteller. Is that, did that shape you in, in, in ways that were different from my Georgia people telling stories? Probably particularly, but generally I would say you and I grew up as multi-storied children. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I think both in the stories that we read and in the stories that we heard, uh, what that is a that is probably the best way. That's my goal for every child is to grow up multi-storied, mm. uh, steeped in stories. That's the thesis of it: that every book is flawed, every creator is flawed mm. uh, from the past in the present. And so, the job of the child reader is to develop this healthy resistance to all of the agendas and all of the stories. <laughs> and the best way to do that is through a moderated. Uh, a moderated appetite, um, which means you're multi-storied. You you get stories from your childhood that were about my dad growing up in the village and hunting for eggs in the morning, uh, as he did every morning, and and running his hands along the the that coop of the hen coop and finding no eggs, and then realizing that oh he had been caressing the skin of a boa constrictor. <laughs> And, and and growing up with stories like that, and then also reading stories like the Chronicles of Narnia at you know, I, I encountered Uncle Jack, as I call him, yeah. when I was nine, and I had no idea Aslan was any sort of metaphor for anything. I just <laughs> loved the stories. And so, but then I, I ran into the Calamie people. And uh-huh. even as a nine-year-old, I realized, wow, these garlic eaters, these, these turban wearers, this, these dark-skinned people, I'm more like them than I am like the Narnians. And so, to, but to moderate that, I had this very healthy self-awareness of how proud my father was of his culture, of his upbringing, mm-hmm. of all the lore and all the poetry that comes out of Bengal. So it never formed me in the way that people fear, oh, a child is going to read a flawed book and is going to internalize that negative view of Kellerman um, and is going, to, is going to end up with a feeling of self-hatred after she reads the Chronicles of Night. That never happened to me. I was like, okay, Uncle Jack. I see you. I see that you went to, you know, you went to, you grew up in the time of the Ottoman Empire. I, I, I didn't see that back then. Now I see it. Yeah. And so this book, Steeped in Stories, is about coming to terms with the uncles and the aunts that shaped me from, uh, as I said, Louisa May Alcott, uh, Maud Hart Lovelace, and uh-huh. um, C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, and really forgiving them for mm-hmm. being products of their era, as I hope someday my great-grandchildren, God willing I have them, will... Uh, <laughs> will have to forgive me because there are things about our time and our era that we just cannot see because we are in the water of this time. So it's the work of a generation to forgive the generations before, I think. Mm, yeah. Um, I love that idea of the, the multiple stories moderating and um, what, what, what other verb do we use here? Moderating and um not canceling out, but, but correcting and, and otherwise, um, well, I, 
I, I like, I love what you're saying here. And it, it never, it never occurred to me to think in those terms. Um, yeah. I think it is the antidote to the question of, well, which books do we, do we give our children if they have those uh, deep flaws from the past, like Babar, you know, yeah. where, uh, you know, Babar goes to France, returns fully clothed with all the naked elephants following him and crowning yeah. him king, you know, where it's, uh, Catherine Patterson has a wonderful quote that I've used, long used as sort of a mission statement. Catherine Patterson, the author who won the Newbery Prize for her Bridge to Terabithia. Mm -hmm. She said that the deepest meaning uh, or morals or didactic agenda is always going to come through in every, every story has some sort of a didactic agenda because every author has some sort of philosophy. So, and D.H. Lawrence said that, many authors have said that, but Catherine Patterson talks about the bones of a book, that those of us who write from a perspective of faith, we need to put our faith in the bones of a story and not put it on like fancy dress. Hmm. Uh, and so I've always sought to do that in my stories, uh, whether it be the virtue of courage in my book, Rickshaw Girl, or just trying to get goodness in the bones of my story. And so uh, I think that when... When you can, when you realize what's in the bone, like Babar, the bones of the story are very problematic because it's essentially a colonial book. Does mm -hmm. that mean you cancel it or just get it off the shelves? That's what some people would say. I, on the other hand, really do believe that. And one of the virtues, I look at seven virtues and seven of these favorite books in Steeped in Stories. And Louisa May Alcott's virtue is temperance, mm -hmm. which is another word for moderation. And I think when you temper, the consumption, if you get one story, I know mean, you've probably seen that Danger of a Single Story TED video by Chimamanda Adichie. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. So she talks about that, how one story is so all-powerful. <laughs> but if you have many, many stories, they temper each other. So so a story from the past can moderate a story. Uh, so Babar from the past can be read, you know, can be co-read with a story by... Um, Atunuke, who writes these wonderful stories for children set in a village in, uh, I think it's uh, her, I think it's in Ghana, but uh, maybe I'm wrong. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. But so we, t we read them together and we, mm -hmm. we, the child then becomes empowered. I trust the child reader. A, mm -hmm. a multi-story child reader is one of the most powerful people on earth. <laughs> okay. I, I'm, I'm now getting, I think I now have the language where I was trying to say a minute ago. Um, and that is the idea that temperance and moderation, I, I tend to think of those words as meaning doing less of something. And you're, you're saying you temper and you moderate by doing more. The more stories, um, you know, temper and moderate. Yes, that's exactly right. If you think of it like a diet, for example, one of the reasons I love living in the United States is because we're, we have incorporated so many different cuisines into yeah. our our wide wide range. I live in the Bay Area and I can, mm -hmm. you know, within 10 to 15 minutes of my house, I can not only go to, I mean, maybe some of my listeners here have an Oriental food restaurant in their in their town, 30 minutes of them. Well, I have like a particular Vietnamese village restaurant that is, uh -huh. so I get to eat this wide range of food and the delight, my delight in food and then all the spices and everything just, expands and sometimes yeah. i think i don't like this i don't like that but choice is important like a wide plethora of 
of culinary choices. It's just a fabulous way to live, just as yeah. it is literary choices. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about expansion. I mean, the, the as we get older, you know, it, the the temptation is to get locked into here. Here's here's what I do. You know, I'm 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 the kind of person who does this, and uh, and stories are a way that we expand rather than than calcify and shrink. Exactly. And I think children particularly, because the way children read is very different than the way adults read. Children read with their hearts and minds wide open. Mm -hmm. It is such an important time of formation and fluency that the more borders children cross before they start middle school, whether it be in real life, in friendship, uh, and also in in, uh, traveling, if they have the, the means but if they don't, they can go to their public library and they can cross all kinds of borders into all kinds of places. And the more they do that, the more it'll last them for a lifetime, the more fluid they will be in being able to cross borders. Yeah, I think a life where you're not crossing borders in friendships or stories or food, that sounds boring, John. <laughs> to me, okay. I, I, yeah. Now, you're, you're talking about, um, so far, in the last few minutes, we've been talking about consumption, right? Consuming a, a more varied diet of books, food, friends. Um, what about from the production side? What, what do these truths and these insights tell us about, I mean, this is a podcast for writers who do creative work. Um, do I, as a, as a, white man from the American South, is that what I contribute is those kind of stories and you contribute your kind of stories. I mean, is it, we all do our thing and then trust that it's, it's ultimately going to uh, all add up and moderate each other or, or am I trying to somehow, do I have responsibility to produce? I, I don't know what my, I don't know what my question is, Matali, but but uh, yeah, it's an important one. It's an important question you're asking. You know, who can write, who can write for whom, and what borders can we cross in the production of fiction? Mm-hmm. Um, and because there's a big move recently that I don't know if you've heard about that whole own voices hashtag that uh, about two years ago that was trending. There's a big move saying that authenticity means that you intersect, you have many intersections with your main character. Uh, and mostly because America is so strange when it comes to race and culture, mostly it's race and culture. And then now, of course, there's gender and all the other things. Mm-hmm. So the identities of our main character, should they match the identities that we as a writer have? This is a question of our era. And it, it makes people feel, I would say, there's a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem with that, restricting identities that match between my main character and myself is that essentially then you're asking me to write memoir all the time. (laughs) And I'm, you know, I I want to read Jonathan Rogers memoir version 25 that you've already (laughs) written. You've already written it. Right. So, and fiction essentially is border crossing. Fiction essentially is in the writer's imagination. You are imagining another life. Uh, It's not your own life. There are parts of it that intersect with yours but it's not yours. And so there's an an amount of humility that we need to write fiction really, because, um, you know, that kind of border storytelling is powerful. It's a powerful act. 
And that's what's being recognized by this discussion about own voices. Who can tell the stories of the Native peoples, the Karkan people that lived here before any, anybody else did? Who can tell those stories? Uh, and uh, they should be told. They shouldn't be forgotten, but who can tell them, right? It's a, it's a powerful act. So the questions of power become important uh, and humility become really important. But at the end of the day, I would say the fear that a writer faces, that to me, the antidote for that is to look again, we talked about this at the beginning of the conversation, that long view of the trees and the wind, <laughs> and the long view of human history of being trapped in this moment. I think a writer has to write the story that is humbly on your heart to be told and trust that it may not reach an audience now. It may not, it may not reach anybody now, but maybe one day it'll reach um, the audience that it was intended for and mm-hmm. have a whole entirely different impact. But if you're, being, if you're being true to your calling, your vocation as a servant of God in the field of creating stories, you have to fight back fear. You have to battle fear. You can't listen to all the voices out there. You need to create um, in acknowledging that it is a powerful act and with a deep humility. Have you ever seen the litany of humility, Jonathan? No, I don't know what you're talking Never. about. Okay, this is one of the most dangerous prayers a writer can pray. Okay. It, it, this 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 field is so rife with um, competition and yeah. fear and envy and doubt and anxiety. Yeah. It's one of the hardest vocations to sustain um, as a as a as a follower of Christ. Yeah. Uh, so this litany of humility is a very dangerous prayer. I recommend that you don't pray it lightly because it is one that is always answered when I pray it. Yeah. And it's it's about you know grant that uh, grant. Give me the desire that others may be esteemed before me. Give me the desire that I might even be forgotten. Uh, It's this beautiful litany that gets us in the place of humility that I think we need to be in. It allows us to confess, you know, what what, what the intentions and the motivations of our art and all those things that creep in, that gross vainglory and that horrible hubris. And then lift it up as a steward to God, having been cleansed of all those gr- that gross undercurrents, yeah. receive forgiveness. I usually like to take uh, the sacrament as part of that. Uh-huh. And then walk out with a bounce in my step and tell the story. You know, knowing it's going to be <laughs> flawed. I'm flawed. The story will be flawed, but I want to tell the story. And I'm not going to fear defeat me. I'm going to be bold in this vocation. Time is short. My time, my plot of time is short. Long time is there. <laughs> But my days are numbered. My, I tell my boys, my hourglass is flipped. The sands are going. <laughs> I'm as fugit, my friends. We got to get going. So that's that's how I approach it. Yeah, my friend Pete Peterson also reminds me and other people who do creative work that um, time is time is is fleeting. Yes, and also in the new heavens and the new earth, we are still going to be doing work, and so we do have. You know, you have to balance that. On the one hand, uh, we have to, to redeem the time. And on the other hand, don't stress out too bad about all those things that you're not going to get around to writing. You just, you know, because ultimately we, we do have all the time in the world. That's right. That's like uh, Leaf by Niggle, right? That beautiful yeah, that's story right. by, by yeah. my uncle John Rowland. Yeah, <laughs> as I call him. Um, uh, you've been in this business for a long time. Um, what kind of fear do you still deal with when it comes to doing creative work? Well, Bear Tree and Little Wind is my first, I would say, uh, 
I don't know how people, the language people use. I'm, I'm very careful with language just because I don't like secular, sacred. I don't like those mm-hmm. words. I would say if you're talking about the bones of a book mm-hmm. and you're talking about fancy dress, Bear Tree and Little Wind is where I tried to put it on my on the skin of the book, my face. Mm-hmm. And and my skin being brown skin, my skin being older woman brown skin, <laughs> like up there, I, you know, with some wrinkles and some flaws. And, and I, I feel like this is a... Um, in some ways, you know, my agent, she's, she's been with me for so long, Laura Renner. She's this lovely uh, Jewish woman who did her dissertation on Christina Rossetti's poetry. Everything I write makes her cry. <laughs> uh, whether it's, you know, back in the my first book, which was, uh, I, won, I won a contest. It was published. But my second book was rejected by maybe 23 different publishers <laughs> and took 11 years between book one and book oh, two. Wow. So she's been with me a long time. And so she went with me into this, the world of this sort of faith on the skin world. And, mm-hmm. and she, she still cries over my picture books. And so this is my first, uh, this is a little scary for me because my faith is so deep and so sweet. Uh, I came from the total outside uh, yeah. to a place of being deeply loved by God. So for it to be out there, Mm-hmm. And uh, it's all part of my culture of growing up. Mm-hmm. Is that's probably the, the fear, but perfect love casts out fear. So mm-hmm. here I am. Here you are. <laughs> Thanks for being here. By the way, <laughs> um, you in in steeped in stories in the introduction there. You quote Catherine Rundle, and she she says that reading children's lit takes adults back to a time when new discoveries came daily and the world was colossal before imagination was trimmed and neatened. And that's kind of what we've been talking about this, this whole time. Um, but the idea of the, uh, the adult imagination being trimmed and neatened um, and not quite as wild and woolly <laughs> as it used to be. Um, I love that idea. And again, you know, as as we're talking about crossing crossing borders and expanding, um, I mean, again, I, I I know the older I get, the more set in my ways I get, um, and so I I love this reminder that that stories invite us back into that daily discovery. I mean, every day I read, I I do experience some sort of discovery. Um, is there a book from your childhood, Jonathan, that you still reread? No. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't much of a reader when I was little. Really? So mm-hmm. it was just the grandparents and the great uncles and that Georgia front uh-huh. porch that were. That's right. So when was the first time that you fell in love with a book? Um, I. Um, okay, Matali. I. You're, you can help me navigate this, all right? The the book I loved growing up was Uncle Remus. Ah. And that's not a book. That's a very problematic book, right? Right, right. And I, um, so yes, I did, I did love that book. And I've had to, had, have, you know, old, as I've grown up, I've had to, had to think, what's the right way to love that book? Right. I, I can even I can even hear a little like a little thread of shame in that in the love of that book. The the way that I maybe feel around 
people who are Indian talking about the Secret Garden and the Little Princess mm -hmm. that are deeply colonial books mm -hmm. during the days of the Raj. And I say I love the Secret Garden. And in that book, Indian people are described as pigs and daughters of pigs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would invite you to reread Uncle Remus, maybe. That that to me, and because the, in Stephen's stories, I talk about that that wonder. And yet as adults, we we the work of uh, the work of becoming an adult is forgiving the storytellers mm. who shaped our hearts and mm. minds. Mm. And so I'd be so curious to see how you reread it again one day, you know, maybe sitting with a glass of sweet tea somewhere and <laughs> um, rereading Uncle Remus as just the two of you, you and that author and that story. That's my invitation in Steeped in Stories is mm. to re-encounter the wonder that we felt as children. And yet, as I said, every book is flawed. Every creator of, of a story is flawed. And so Uncle Remus maybe is an egregious example, but I think when we read anything from the past there, that shaped us, there's that wonder of it. Oh, I read a, a Secret Garden. I'll, I'll never forget that feeling of the robin showing Mary the key um, mm. and, mm. and the wonder of that garden coming back to life. Yeah. And then there was the daughter of the pig part. You know, so uh -huh. how do I... Uh, how do I come to terms with that as an adult? Well, when I reread it now, now that I've done the work of forgiveness, hmm. I can still receive the wonder of that story. So yeah. I'm very conscious of the way the storytelling in Uncle Remus shaped, you know, my my storytelling and in, in, in my novels, you know, for young readers, um, the verbal energy of of you know the, the way Joel Chandler Harris, which I think he he you know borrowed a lot of, i mean i know he borrowed a lot of that verbal energy from from the uh you know black storytellers that that he that he heard these story these stories from and that um there's no question the the particular kind of humor um really shaped you know me as a writer and um and on the other hand when people ask me what books i loved as a child i i you know tend to not talk about Uncle Remus. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you for bringing that into the light with me. I really appreciate that. That's a great example of what we're talking about mm -hmm. here. You know, little Jonathan. I hadn't even thought about it until you asked me that question. But. Eight, little Jonathan, age eight or nine, being deeply shaped, whether for good or for <clears throat> maybe, uh, I'm sad that you weren't multi-storied back then, you know, that you didn't <laughs> get to have that temperance uh, to push back against. But maybe there were stories uh, around you. There were people who were living the life of, of crossing yeah. borders to love, and mm -hmm. there were there were people that were uh, able to moderate that power of the the negative power of that story. You talked about the positive power of it, mm -hmm. um, and so it seems like you've come to a um, there. There obviously were people who spoke into yeah, your sure. life, sure, that were able to moderate that. So that's what well, that's what we're grateful for. I'm so grateful for my father and for his wide open heart uh, to all different kinds of stories. Yeah. Um, okay. We let's talk about story. We need to wrap up, but you got, I've still got 50 things I want to talk to you about. So we're going to have to just sort of be selective here. You, you talk, we've, you, we've touched on the idea of stories as transmitters of morality. Um, let's talk about stories as transmitters of hope. Mm. Um, as you say, you know, literary fiction for grown-ups tends to be um, uh, less hopeful. Um, that's and that's not. You know, you can't 
say that categorically because there, there, there is literary fiction that's hopeful, but it's not quite as 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 a as a category. <laughs> it's, it's not quite as hopeful as as children's stories tend to be. Um, so I, I I understand that part of the reason you, you go back to these books, these children's books, is to cultivate hope in your own life. Is that fair to say? Definitely, definitely. Uh, yeah, I talk about uh, the, the seven virtues, and hope is one of them. And the book I chose was Emily of Deep Valley, uh, which mm-hmm. I love. But it's, I've never uh, read that book. Oh, yeah. It's a set in Minnesota, great sense of place mm-hmm. in a slew where uh, Emily's trapped in this small town and having to take care of her grandfather while her other friends are going off to college. And this despond really falls upon her. And it's a story of how she pushes through with hope uh, to practice hope. So it always feeds my hope for sure. Uh So it's one of the, it's written by, she wrote the Betsy Tacey book. So it's one of my favorites uh, to reread in the winter. It's such a, these books are all seasonal for me, these rereads too. Um, So yeah, I think hope is in Bear Tree and Little Wind, uh, traditionally Holy Week on Monday in the Orthodox Church and in the Catholic Church, Monday focuses on the return of Jesus. So Holy Week in the Protestant Church ends on Easter Sunday. And I've seen some early reviews of the book wondering, why don't I just focus on Holy Week if it's a story for Holy Week? Well, Holy Week traditionally has ended with a remembrance that we are waiting in the time between the times for for God to come back and make things right. And so in that book, I leave room for a child to ask questions. There's the picture Mm -hmm. of of the temple being burned by the Roman soldiers at just 70 years after Jesus, after the great, you know, we celebrate Easter Sunday. And then 70 years later is chaos and turmoil and suffering. So I understand why in this in-between times, fiction has to explore really that question of, you know, theodicy, like how that I, that I initially came to, mm. to know the beauty of Jesus. When I asked that question, how can a good God, loving God coexist in a world of suffering and chaos? So I wrote the book so that with a loving arm around them, a child can ask questions like, well, well, what happened? Why didn't everything become right? Why is there still suffering and chaos and evil? Like, so, because, you know, we've come through a tough time. Children, especially this last few years, have yeah. encountered firsthand some some deep suffering and loss. Yeah. So, for them to be able to ask that question, that's an important question of Easter Monday. Yeah. But that time's going to come when hope is going to not be by, it'll be, will be, it'll be seen. It'll be seen face to face. And so, in the meantime, we need both kinds of books. The problem with adult reads, Jonathan, is you take them on a beach vacation and you, they're such great writing and you love the characters and you're reading it, and then at the end, like, everybody dies, and you're depressed. <laughs> you're like, I'm on this beautiful beach vacation, and my yeah, right. feels so bleak. So we need both kinds, but children's stories especially, I think we've get, we're given the license. I think you guys in the literary world of adult world, if you write a hopeful story, people are think it's less literary. I don't know where they get that idea, because it's not. Right. But in our world, we can be hopeful, and people will say, hey, this is a great story. So I think it's more from the critic world, the world of critics, rather yeah. than um, yeah. the world of the storyteller. Yeah. Well, Matali, we got to end with my uh, usual last question, which is who are the writers who make you want to write? And I'm going to, I want to limit you, you. You can't say the seven people <laughs> that you wrote chapters about in steep by story. Give me, give uh, me some, we can all, we, we can all get steep by steep in stories and see your seven aunties and uncles. Um, <laughs> 
that you that you love. So give me something else. Something else. Well, I think because I was so displaced, I love stories that give you a good sense of place. I'm a five mm. senses person, thanks to my dad. He was very much a man who lived in the present mm. and, you know, smells and tastes. And one of the great advantages of writing fiction that we have over the screen screenwriter is that we can engage all five senses and we have access to the reader's history of all five senses mm-hmm. so that uh, we can create a sense of place that's so rich, whereas the poor, oh, poor poor, you know, movie makers who are laughing all the way to the bank, they just have a montage, you know, a montage of the San Francisco <laughs> Bay Area. They can't get me to smell what it smells like when the, you know, the eucalyptus is right after a rain, you know, those, yeah, right. but I, as a writer can make you, bring you to the Bay Area. So I love a sense of place. So I still, I'll go back to the past again. All my favorite writers are dead. So it's not good to be on that list. It's, it's probably <laughs> doomed for you if you make it on my list, but I do love the books by, um, uh, there's uh, Elizabeth Enright's books, uh, The Saturdays, just those books. She's She was an artist and she has such a great five senses way uh, of writing. Okay. Um, the Melody books, I, I, and those are children's stories as well. All my favorites are children's stories. Some of, some of the books that I love the most are the standalones from the writers I, I mentioned, like Jane of Lantern Hill, which is a, uh-huh. an uncommon uh, Maud Hart Lovelace book, Great Sense of Place. Charlie, I told you you can't do the seven. I'm sorry. Okay, I'll go to Harry Potter then. She's not dead yet, (laughs) J.K. Rowling. But one of the things I think the reasons the book is so successful is because she creates such a great sense, a rich sense of place in that in that book. I think the Gryffindor common room, that that fireplace, those squashy armchairs, the the Hogwarts. We, we, you know, all of us. I my son's at college tours, and a, a, a school cafeteria was only as good as it reminded them of the Hogwarts yeah. dining hall. <laughs> because we all lived there. We all dwelled there during yeah. that era. Um, so I think any place gives me, that transports me five senses. Give me your book with sweet tea on that Georgia porch back in the day with uh, your great uncle, and I'll go with you. I've, never been, I've been to Atlanta, but I've never really been to the wider Georgia or the yeah. countryside. So if you transport me to the countryside with all five senses and engage me, I will, I would love to go. And you, you can later on, you can send me a book, one of yours that you think will take yeah. me somewhere. And I'd love to read that. You need to be reading Flannery O'Connor if you want. Yeah. To oh, to. definitely that. Yeah. Well, like you're talking about grown up books. I do love Flannery O'Connor. The problem with reading while you're, do you ever have this problem reading rich, deep books while you're writing? Mm-hmm. I'm in the middle of revising a novel now. It, I can't, so I go to rereads from childhood because I, they're almost memorized and they don't affect yeah. my creative process as deeply uh-huh. as something like Flannery Connor would. You know, if I read her uh, it, or Graham Greene or um, just something like I, w- I would be so deeply affected by it. I think it would affect my craft. Yeah. All right. Matali Perkins, thank you so much for being here. This has been a lot of fun for me. And uh, I hope we can talk again soon. I love that, Jonathan. Thank you for your good questions. I really appreciated that. The Habit Podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To check out more of our podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcast. Our work at The Rabbit Room would be impossible without the generous support of our membership. If you'd like to learn more about membership at The Rabbit Room, visit rabbitroom.com slash member. And thanks for listening. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.